1825, and painter Samuel F. B. Morse has just landed the biggest commission of his life, painting a portrait of a French commander in Washington, D.C. He's having a great time in the capital, going to parties, living it up, and writing home to his wife, Lucretia, in Connecticut. I long to hear from you, he writes, but the mail is slow, and before his letter gets to her, he gets a letter from his father. His father says Lucretia has fallen ill and died. Morse didn't even know she was sick. He never had a chance to say goodbye. He drops everything and gets on a stagecoach back to New Haven. But by the time he arrives, his wife has already been buried. Eight years later, Morse is on board a ship called the Sully, coming back from Europe, where he'd gone to try to escape his sorrow. One night at dinner, a doctor from Boston is regaling his shipmates with a story of something he'd seen in Paris. It was a demonstration of electromagnetism. Somebody had wrapped a wire around the Sorbonne, sent electricity through it, and showed that the electricity hadn't taken any time to finish the circuit. It traveled instantly from one end to the other. Can you imagine if we could send news that rapidly? Another diner asks. The question jolts Morse out of his stupor. Why can't we, he says. Morse is a painter, not a scientist, but he becomes obsessed with inventing a way for people to communicate instantly over long distances. If he'd been able to get the news of his wife's illness right away, he could have been there when she died. He wants to make sure nobody else suffers like he did. Twelve years later, using dots and dashes to represent letters, Morse sends a message with his brand new telegraph over 44 miles of iron wire from Washington to Baltimore. The message says, what hath God wrought? Maybe more pertinent for us today, what hath Morse wrought? The answer, a new and insatiable need for instant knowledge and communication. In 1876, the telephone carries live human voices on a wire. In 1895, the radio sends voices through the air. In 1924, if you can believe it, the wireless fax machine sends documents and images to distant cities. In 1971, email delivers personal letters from computer to computer. And in 1992, texts fly through the ether and land in our pockets. Today we work, we learn, we play, we socialize, we love, instantly and at a distance. A painter's invention, born in sorrow, made possible by metal wire, let loose a stream of innovation that changed our expectations and our brains and the way we pass nearly every waking minute. In a fascinating new book, material scientist Anissa Ramirez celebrates the often surprising history of human invention. But she also shows how our inventions have an uncanny way of reinventing us. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. 
Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, how the things we make remake us. We humans are, by our very nature, inventors. Since sharpening the first stick and lighting the first fire, we've been on an innovation spree, constantly developing new tools and new materials to solve our problems. But we rarely stop and think about the far-ranging consequences of our innovations, which can be dangerous. Because when we change our material world, that material world inevitably turns around and changes us. And not just our behavior, but sometimes our very biology. That's the subject of the alchemy of us, how humans and matter transformed one another, a new book by Anissa Ramirez. Ramirez traces the impact of eight game-changing inventions from clocks to steel rails to silicon chips and shows the surprising ways that we've changed because of them. With a doctorate in materials science and engineering from Stanford, Anissa Ramirez is both a scientist and a science evangelist. She has worked as a researcher at Bell Labs and as an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Yale. She also writes about science and hosts a daily two-minute podcast called Science Underground. Anissa, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. We're so thrilled to have you with us. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. As a parent, I worry about my kids watching too much television. I guess today it's actually YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. But I was thrilled to learn that in your case, it was a television show that ignited your interest in science. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, there was a show back in the early 80s called 321 Contact. And the reason why it was so inspirational to me, because there was a little African-American girl solving problems. And when I saw her, I saw my reflection. I was one of these nerdy kids, very curious, not too many kids thinking about the world the way I did. But when I saw her, I said, oh, okay. And then I asked my mom what she's doing. And my mom said she's doing science. I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. I pulled it up on YouTube because I was curious about your description. And I did see myself reflected in the suspenders and the pants that were pulled up very high in the 80s. Do you remember that? <laughs> it was the uh, Mork from Ork look. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> And this led you to get a PhD in material science and engineering eventually from Stanford. Meanwhile, my mother was trying to keep me away from the television set, which might have been a mistake. <laughs> and you chose material science, which you say is like New Jersey. I love this <laughs> metaphor. Can you tell us why material science is like New Jersey? Well, only people from New Jersey can make fun of New Jersey. But the reason why I say it's like New Jersey is because both New Jersey and material science have been overshadowed by their neighbors. For New Jersey, that's Philadelphia and New York. And for material science, that's chemistry and physics. And I also use that analogy just to explain what material science is, because it's kind of a hard topic to describe. But if I tell you that it's in between those two fields, that it's interested in atoms and how they bond, and that's the chemistry part, and then how those bonds lead to how materials behave, that's the physics part. I think that makes sense to people more than how people are usually, if they've even heard of material science at all, might think of it. And, you know, as someone who avoided all science classes as an undergraduate, <laughs> but now reads as many science books as I can get my hands on, I don't know exactly how that happened. It struck me that the clear lines between these different scientific disciplines, whether it's, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, that when you look more closely, those lines are kind of arbitrary, aren't they? And, and a lot of the most interesting discoveries are kind of in the space in between these disciplines. It's the interfaces where it's exciting. Chemistry is fine. 
Biology's fine. Biochemistry is exciting. I love your account of what your college professor said that caused you to fall in love with material science in your first class, which was, I think, the reason we don't fall through the floor, the reason my sweater is blue, the reason light works is because of the way atoms interact with each other. And so that sort of lit you up. Yeah, that became a framework because when he said that, I was able to look at things around me and say, oh, yeah, that was made possible by atoms. Oh, yeah, that was made possible by atoms. And so that gave me a way to understand the world, and I wanted to know more about the way the world worked using that lens. So the title of your new book is The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? The reason why I call the book The Alchemy of Us is I was trying to hint at how our pursuit for something golden might not necessarily go the way that we like. When people invent or when scientists create things, they'll say, I invented this, and they'll end the sentence with a period. And I'm saying change that period to a comma and say, I created this, and then this now changed me somehow. Mm -hmm. We're in a dance with these materials. The way life will be after that invention has been part of our life will be different. And so we should honor that. Instead of thinking that, a material comes into our world or invention comes into our world and that's it. It actually will change life and make it different than it was before. And sometimes there's unintended consequences. So when we talk about the invention of steel, the process that had to be undergone to transform iron into steel took just years and years and years of trial and error and missteps. And this is close to home for you as a material scientist. Can you tell us a little bit about what was required to transform matter in this way? Well, the story of Henry Bessemer is the story of steel. Henry Bessemer was an industrialist. He was a very rich man looking for a way to be richer. And at the time, Britain was at war and they needed better cannons. And the metals that they had at the time weren't very good for cannons because either they were too soft so a cannonball would be blown out the side or they were too brittle, the whole cannon would explode and the people who were shooting would actually die and not their enemy. So they needed a better material. And so he embarked on creating steel. And by the time he figured out how to make steel, the war was over. Steel is a combination of iron and carbon and it's at a specific ratio. So he started off with a material that had lots of carbon in it and so when air was blasted into it, a chemical reaction took place. So it was sort of like a volcano. In fact, it erupted so high that it actually burned his roof. And then once he removed the carbon from that iron, he can then add the iron into it to the specific amount. And then he created his new material. And this material of steel is a beautiful material because it has properties that usually don't exist together at the same time. And this made it possible to not only make the cannons, but also to make rails that lasted a long time. Rails were initially made with iron, and they lasted two years. But when they were made from steel, they lasted 18 years. Before reading your book, I would have guessed that steel was most important for the way it impacted buildings and cities. But you point out that steel was instrumental in making the world smaller. Right, right. Well, we were in very small pockets. The notion of traveling 50 miles before steel rails was a long distance. Let's say that I would move away from my mother and it was more than 50 miles and this is before steel rails. The chances of us seeing each other would be rare. And so when we hugged, it might be like our last hug. So when steel rails came, 50 miles was no big deal. And you have this incredible description, by the way, of what it was like to take a stagecoach from Boston to New York. Right. Right. I think it took something like a week. I mean, imagine these were like rutted mud roads 
And they were waking up at like 3.34 in the morning right. with an inebriated stagecoach driver. Right, right. <laughs> with 12, 14-hour days. It took like four or five, six days to get from Boston to New York. It's almost inconceivable today. And no cushions and no shocks. I mean, this is a stagecoach, <laughs> right, though, you know, right. and no restrooms. You have to go where you have to go. So it was like being in a rock tumbler. And if you had to go from Boston to New York, it would take you a week to get there. You would also stay in New York for some time to make that trip worth it. Mm -hmm. So that also kind of links to our sense of time. Now, if I want to go to New York and I'm in Boston, I can do that in a day. I can be home the same night. So very different sense of time and space. And among the unforeseen consequences, you tell the story of the evolution of Christmas as a holiday, which was a total surprise to me. I didn't know this history that Christmas cards, Christmas trees, the reckless overspending on Christmas presents we're all accustomed to, this really all kind of emerged in the mid to late 1800s, and trains were part of that. So the American Industrial Revolution was after the, what had happened in England, and we had lots of products. And you can get the products to different parts of the country very easily because of the steel rails. And now you have to get rid of those products. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's this minor holiday that Christians celebrate called Christmas, which is about staying at home with the family. Let's equate gift giving with love. And let's have those gifts go to people who live in different parts of the world. And we can have them buy our items, and then we can also ship those items. So we're going to make money two ways. So Christmas evolved into this holiday from something very minor to what we know as Christmas today. I think my children would say that I've tried to make the case that it's really reckless overspending. And I think their view is that it's about the redistribution of wealth from older generations to younger generations. <laughs> oh, you got smart kids. <laughs> they think that's the way it's supposed to work. So how about, so the story of Samuel Morse, who we all now know because of Morse code, mm -hmm. right? Everybody's heard of Morse code. How did the invention of the telegraph, what were the unintended consequences of this invention? Well, when Morse was working on his telegraph, he had an assistant, Alfred Vail, and they would test their device back and forth. And Morse was actually getting a little annoyed at Vail, and he wrote in one letter, condense your language. Don't use the word the, uh, in words that don't add to the meaning because it was very onerous to convert letters of the alphabet into dots and dashes and then from dots and dashes to letters. So it was very tiresome. The telegraph was great at shuttling information back and forth, but it had a shortcoming. It could only handle a certain number of messages at a time. And these telegraph offices wanted to make sure that the lines were available for future customers. So they set up a pricing structure where the first 10 words were one set price and then each additional word was one-tenth that price. So the average message was actually 12 words. Now, it ends up that telegraphs became part of newsrooms, and editors would tell reporters to be succinct. So they used to write in a style with short declarative sentences. It ends up that there was a reporter who really loved this style. He embraced it as his own when he wrote his books. His name was Ernest Hemingway. So one of the unintended consequences of the telegraph was that it shaped language. Isn't that interesting? And it's Generations later, there would be a company called Twitter that would make the decision <laughs> to sort of arbitrarily right. create constraints, right? And we're taught in writing class, brevity is the soul of wit. Right. Well, it's so hard for us to imagine life before instantaneous communication. And I was just bowled over by the story of the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the War of 1812. Andrew Jackson and his troops facing off against the British. Mm -hmm. Bloody battle. The Americans are victorious. And it turns out that this was fought two weeks after a peace treaty was signed in Belgium. Right. Right. I mean, to think that thousands of people dying on the battlefield two weeks after a peace treaty is signed, inconceivable today, but mm -hmm. this was the world before the telegraph. 
That's right. It took over a month to get the information. The treaty had to go by boat, took a month to travel the ocean to get to Washington. And so that battle, they thought they were doing the right thing, but they didn't know that peace had already been the plan. Mm -hmm. This war really emboldened people's love for Andrew Jackson. It propelled him to becoming president. And as we know, that shaped America drastically. So had a text message come from Belgium to tell Jackson, hey, you don't need to do that. Life might have been different. And that's one of the wonderful, subtle nuances of your book is sort of teasing out all these unintended consequences. And to think that had that battle not been fought, not only would many lives have been saved, but we might not have had Andrew Jackson as president, which could have steered American history in a kinder direction, perhaps. Mm -hmm. There are so many surprising ways in which our history and our modern reality has been shaped by our inventions, both for good and for ill. That raises a raft of questions about the very nature of innovation. You often hear people say that technology is neutral. It's the way it's applied that matters. That feels a bit disingenuous when it comes to technologies like torture devices or nuclear weapons. But what about more apparently innocuous inventions like photographic film or the light bulb? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. It's 1841, and abolitionist Frederick Douglass is at a photo studio having his picture taken. He's wearing a bow tie. He looks serious, even pensive, gazing at something off in the distance. He's done this before. Douglas, who's black, is one of the most photographed people in the 19th century and one of the technology's greatest promoters. He observes that unlike painted portraits, which are too expensive for most people, photography is a democratic medium. The humblest servant girl may now possess a picture of herself such as the wealth of kings could not purchase 50 years ago, Douglas writes. Everybody can have their picture taken and be portrayed accurately without the bias of the photographer affecting the image. Or so he thinks, but it's not exactly how things turn out. It's the 1960s. The Supreme Court has recently ordered the integration of public schools. A mother opens an envelope with her child's class picture and gets a nasty surprise. The kids are lined up in rows in their best clothes, hair neatly slicked and combed, the white children with their shining faces, but the black children look like ink blots, white eyes and teeth, and no other discernible features. The mother calls Kodak to complain. Turns out the problem is in the chemicals they use to develop the film. They're adjusted to white skin tones, so anyone whose skin is darker looks off. The exposure's not right, the color's not right. The bias is in the design. Finally, Kodak comes up with a new formulation that captures rich browns. But it's not because of the mom's complaints. It's because of the candy lobby. Chocolate manufacturers want their products to look more attractive. Kodak's rival Polaroid has the opposite problem. 
Perhaps once or twice in a lifetime, there comes an invention so radically new, it actually changes the way we live our lives. Less than two seconds after you touch the red electric button, the camera hands you the picture. It can reveal the world to you as you've never seen it before. It's 1970, and Polaroid employees Caroline Hunter and Ken Williams discover something unsettling about the new ID2 camera. The ID2 comes with a special boost button next to the flash. It's designed especially so dark skin will show up better, which is just what the apartheid government of South Africa has been looking for. The instant pictures are perfect for their passbooks, the mandatory travel documents they use to monitor and control the movements of black people. Population registration and control was a tool, and Polaroid had the technology that made that tool effective and brutal. Caroline Hunter is a chemist. She and Williams formed the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement. They want Polaroid out of South Africa. They want the company to denounce apartheid. They hold rallies and ultimately get fired for their activism. But in 1977, they succeed. Polaroid withdraws from South Africa. It's one of the first U.S. companies to divest in a worldwide campaign that eventually helps topple the apartheid regime. Photography may seem like the ultimate neutral technology. It faithfully records what's in front of the camera. But as Anissa Ramirez points out, you can never untangle the technology from the social and political realities in which it's born. So what do you mean, Anissa, when you write that science isn't neutral? A lot of people, of course, assume that the whole purpose of science is to at least attempt to be neutral. Right, right. Well, as scientists, when we write our papers and when we think about problems, we want to be impartial. But we're human. And so everything we make is going to have our experiences in it. Anything we create is going to be based on how we think about the world, how we frame the world. Photography, this much beloved technology, it actually had a bias built into it. Some of the early film wasn't able to pick up darker skin. And that is because the folks who were making it were focused on a certain population. They were testing it on one demographic. And as a result, it was optimized for people who have lighter skin. And there was something called the Shirley card, which was used to try to optimize coloring. And the Shirley card, of course, focused on a white woman named Shirley. This was part of the reason that it was sort of miscalibrated for people of darker skin. Long time ago, when I had a summer job, I was working at a company that did color science. And it's very, very hard. If you move one aspect, another shifts. And if you do another thing, another thing shifts. And so it would be wonderful to have a cheat sheet, if you will, that all you have to do is match this and you know everything else is going to work out. And that's the Shirley card. The Shirley card is a picture of a Caucasian woman, beautiful woman, 1970s. And what you're supposed to do is match her skin and then match the colorful pillows in the background. And if you match all of those to your calculation, then everything that you render is going to be the same as if it was printed on a cereal box or on a billboard. It makes life so much simpler. But that decision to use this woman means that People who have skin that's different from Shirley's, so if you have Mediterranean skin or if you're Asian or if you're South American, your skin is going to look bizarre. And if you have African-American skin, you may not be rendered at all. And so that simple decision to make life easy and by using a woman as the standard has built in a bias into the film. The unintended consequences of these technologies 
often go in multiple directions. You write about how Frederick Douglass, in the middle of the 19th century, recognized the power of photography to communicate with the world, and he became the most photographed man on the planet. Absolutely. So Frederick Douglass, he would have worn the shirt that uh, black images matter because what he was trying to do was push back the stereotypes of what people thought about African-Americans. They thought of them as the scoundrel, as a slave, as a Sambo. And he had, if you ever seen a picture of Frederick Douglass, he was a very handsome man. So if you have a picture of him looking regal, his image is going to push back on what you think an African-American person should look like. And so he loved to go to studios to get his portrait taken, not because he was vain, because those portrait studios would actually sell his pictures and distribute them. Mm. And so this was a way to kind of spread that image of what a positive African-American person looks like. There's so many great stories in this <laughs> book of yours. Yet another story that I absolutely love is the story. It begins with William Wallace and his arc light, right? Thomas Edison would go on to make it practical. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share this story and some of the unintended consequences of artificial light? Sure. Well, William Wallace is a gentleman who lived in Ansonia, Connecticut, and it ends up that Edison came to visit him uh, because he had heard that there was a gentleman inventor who made some form of electric light, and Edison wasn't even thinking about doing electric lights. And so he met Wallace, and Wallace had made an arc light, which is far too bright for the home, but this inspired Edison to go back to Menlo Park to make his incandescent light. And as for what was the outcome of Edison's lights, well, once he, he was able to figure out how to make incandescent lights and make them cheaply, we started to live in a world where there was an overabundance of light. How is that impacting us? Well, it's not only impacting humans, it's impacting our natural world. And so fireflies are being impacted by them. They speak with a Morse code of flashes, but they're unable to see each other because of the overabundance of lights. So their number is decreasing because of that. But fireflies are not the only species that are being impacted by the lights. We are. It ends up that humans have two modes. We have a daytime mode and a nighttime mode. In our daytime mode, we have an increase in growth hormone, a higher metabolism, and higher temperature. In our nighttime mode, all of those values decrease. How our body knows what mode to be in is dependent on the lights. When we detect blue light, our body goes into daytime mode. Now, it ends up when Edison was alive, he lived by sunlight, and then in the evening, they lived by candlelight and by gas lamps. Sunlight has a lot of blue light in it, so he was in daytime mode. And then as the sun set and he used gas lamps or any kind of candle, that's a redder type of light, and so he was in nighttime mode. Mm. But today, we live under artificial lights, and artificial lights are very strong in the blue. We live in artificial lights all the time until we go to bed, and so that means that we're in growth mode all the time. And as a result of that, our cells will respond to this overstimulation of growth hormones. Now, one cool thing that I found is when I talked to a scientist at the National Institute of Health, he said that we are slightly taller than our ancestors. And the reason being the lights. Of course, there are other factors to that, such as nutrition and clean water and medicine and less war. But another reason is because we're in growth mode all the time. So that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. But he also said that there's some things that are not so nice about that. If our cells are awash in growth hormone all the time, they're going to respond. And as a result, there'll be a range of diseases that will happen because of that. And epidemiologists have done studies and they found one population of people that have a range of ailments in some forms of cancer. And it has to do with when they work. They work at night underneath the artificial lights. So one of the unintended consequences of Edison's development of the electric light, which he had designed to push back the darkness, is actually it is impacting our health.
This was extraordinary to me. And of course, I'm distraught by the negative impacts on fireflies because I remember more fireflies as a child and that's terrible. We love fireflies. But this is really quite serious and something that I think is really like a public service message for our listeners, which is this evidence that the impact of artificial light is actually to cause our bodies to be more exposed to growth hormones for longer mm -hmm. periods of time, which has the impact of increasing risk of cancer. And for those who might be skeptical, you point out in the book that there's one community of women who are at lower risk of breast cancer, and that's blind women. Isn't that amazing? People think that there's an epidemic of breast cancer, mm -hmm. and it ends up that there's a population, and that's blind women who seem to be the outliers of this trend. And it's because they can't detect the lights. So there's much more work that needs to be done, but there are some prescriptions of what we can do to live in a healthy way underneath the lights. And that is that we should use blue light during the day. So compact fluorescent bulbs, blue LEDs or the sun as our form of light. Mm -hmm. And then as the sun sets, we should switch over to incandescent bulb or red LED. And also we need to change our devices too. Our devices generate a lot of blue light. Mm -hmm. So we should put them into nighttime mode so that we can go into nighttime mode. So there are ways that we can mitigate this invention. Well, I'll have you know that yesterday when I was reading this section, I went into the settings on my iPhone and I changed the settings so that it automatically now goes into night shift mode at sunset. And a subtle unintended consequence that you point out in the book, which I love, is that artificial light may have reduced our sense of humility. And you point out that when we look at the stars, which is harder and harder to do, mm -hmm. we realize that we are really, really small. And you say, and I quote, artificial light took away the awe. With the universe now invisible to us, it's easy to incubate hubris under these lights. The dark sky used to be a window. Today, it's a mirror. When we have lights masking the sky, we don't look up and we don't feel connected to nature. We don't feel like we're small parts of this huge fabric. We just look at each other and we become a little bit more important to ourselves. So I think stepping out and looking at the beautiful sky, you have a sense of wonder that's often missing in our day to day. I love that. You know, yet another great story in the book. <laughs> I was interested to learn that the light bulb was not Edison's favorite invention. It was the phonograph that he most loved. And something else I didn't know, he thought it was going to be used primarily for voice recording rather than music. Right. He thought it was going to be for office dictation. You write that an unintended consequence of the phonograph was enabling people to begin to listen to more diverse types of music. The music could be an ambassador for different cultures around the world. Absolutely. Everyone loved the phonograph. And it was affordable that anybody from any walk of life could get one. And so musicians would record their music and eventually they would become records. And of course, at the time, America was very, very segregated. And so blacks and whites didn't socialize, but they appreciated each other's music. So they would listen to each other's music and as a result, inspire each other. And that actually became the way that American music was fashioned by listening to other cultures' records. So that was definitely an unintended consequence of the phonograph and, and a positive one. When we think of the unintended negative consequences of recorded music, one that has struck me is the loss of communal singing. My children, Anissa, tell me that I shouldn't sing. I should leave it to the professionals on the radio. <laughs> but that strikes me as a loss. The idea that there's this teeny subset of the population that have beautiful voices that should sing and the rest of us should stay silent. Of course, I, we would never want to give up recorded music. But I have a little bit of a wistful yearning for the days when if you wanted to hear music, you had to learn how to make music or find people who knew how to make music who were probably people that you knew. It was this very personal experience. 
there's loss alongside that which we've gained there. I, I think you're right. And it ends up that people who are singing in a chorus, their heartbeats align. They thump as one. So there's something very sacred about it. And I don't mean sacred in a religious way. I mean communal. Yeah. So I think it's a loss to say only Lady Gaga should sing. Yeah. So even though our technologies have made us more performative, I think we're losing something because the thing about being human is that we don't have to be perfect, but we do it anyway. It makes us feel good. It makes us creative. It makes us feel connected. So I definitely feel a loss that way. We'll never be able to predict all the outcomes of what we invent, but that doesn't mean we can't try. What does looking at the history of technology tell us about the future? How are the inventions we're coming up with now going to change us? And is there anything we can do about it? From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Sometimes invention involves putting existing things together in new ways. Think of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich or putting wheels on luggage. What a good idea that was. Over at the Next Big Idea Club, we think we've invented something pretty special. We've combined the mind-opening power of books with the networking genius of the internet to create a vibrant online community devoted to the sharing of big, bold ideas. Join us for three months free and get the best in new life-changing nonfiction books, as well as video and audio from the authors themselves that let you absorb their key ideas in just minutes. Check it out at nextbigideaclub.com. That's nextbigideaclub.com. In The Alchemy of Us, Anissa Ramirez argues that studying the past can help us understand the future. She challenges old narratives about the march of technology more than anything by humanizing it. Invention isn't just something that happens. It's something that people do. It's even something you or I could do. Another theme that comes up in your book is how the mythology of the lone genius mm. tends to cause us to oversimplify the story of how things are invented. And I was struck in that passage about Wallace inventing the arc light and Edison visiting him. And after this incredibly generous tour and demonstration of his arc light, on his way out, Edison says, well, I'm going to beat you at this, right? <laughs> yeah. Not a nice guy. Not a nice guy, this Edison. <laughs> right. How horribly selfish and competitive and also just misconstruing how this process happens, right? Because it was not Edison on his own figuring this out. It was Edison figuring it out mm -hmm. in somewhat of a collaboration with a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, he was inspired by Wallace, and then he went back to Menlo Park, and he had all these men who he called the muckers working together with him. I think he looked at hundreds and hundreds of different materials for the filament, the part of the light bulb that glowed. He couldn't have done that on his own. So this notion of Edison creating it on his own is one of the things that I wanted to highlight isn't exactly true in The Alchemy of Us. And we continue this myth today. If you look at the announcements for the Nobel laureates, we choose three people. That is not how science is done. There's an army of graduate students and undergrads that have made that possible, but we still highlight those three people. So we like myths, but they're not exactly true. And they don't serve us all because if we 
keep focusing on that sole genius to make something, then that little boy or that little girl who thinks that they want to be an inventor won't think it's possible because, well, I'm not smart like that person. That's not how genius operates. Genius is in the doing. And all you have to do is be willing to work hard. And that is your admission ticket to being an inventor. I want people to feel that science and inventing is achievable. And it's not just for a small population. Absolutely. There's also this sort of human impulse to like stories. But a story wants to have a protagonist. Mm -hmm. And that storytelling process tends to oversimplify it. Maybe part of the solution is to keep retelling these stories, which you do in this book, to embrace the complexity and get closer to the truth. I think so. I think we need to have different people tell these stories. Go back to the original materials, go to the archives, and then suss out what you think is the story. And we will get closer to the truth, and the truth will have many facets to it. And so I do tell stories that are well-known, but you see a new angle. As we just discussed, we saw a little bit about Edison and realized that he wasn't such a nice guy. We don't revere him. We see him as a human who is flawed. I think if we do that, then, again, science seems more accessible, but also we're able to get the meaning of the story more readily. When we think about how that which we create changes us, as you say, the central theme running through the book, this has perhaps never been more true than right now with our computers, our smartphones, which are now moving onto our bodies in the form of wristwatches and maybe soon into our bodies. And you write, Anissa, that the dance between the human brain and the silicon brain made visible how the creator is recreated by its creation. What a wonderful sentence. How are we changing right now? Well, the most important thing I wanted to get across is that we are being changed by our technologies. We may not know how we're going to change, but we have to be asking that question. And we have to be asking that question early on as we're innovating. I created this. How is this going to recreate me? And specifically, when we talk about technologies like silicon technologies, our cell phones, the way that we think has changed. We now have a new relationship with information because it's so readily available so that we don't feel compelled to remember it. We just remember where it's located. We don't remember what the information is, but where the information is. And this slight change is going to modify how we create. Creation is based on having lots of information go into our brains, simmer, and then percolate out in a new way. If we don't put that information into our brains, what are we percolating? There are people who are optimists about technology and think, well, if we have much more access to information, we'll be more creative. And I can see that point. But we don't use technologies like the internet in a way to make us creative because most of the time we're distracted. And when I look at people, they're playing games. So it had the potential to do that, to make us more creative and to make us better thinkers, but we don't use that technology that way. So I think that we have to be very careful about how we use our cell phones, how we use the computer, how we use the internet. We need to have some hygiene, if you will, make some time where we learn things, we remember things so that we can keep exercising that creativity muscle. And as you point out, the stakes are relatively high because the brain is plastic. You write about how musicians have a part of the brain in the cerebral cortex that's bigger than non-musicians. So the brain is plastic. Mm -hmm. We are physically changing our brains as we interact with the world. And we are physically changing our brains as we interact with technology. And as you say, the internet has become an extension of our minds. We no longer have to remember countless facts or even our mother's telephone number, as you point right. out. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, they say if you don't use it, you lose it. 
And I like my brain. I like my brain before the internet. I really love that brain, but my brain feels attacked by the internet. And again, this is a generational thing. Each generation operates differently based on the technology that is around them. But the way that we use technology is not making us able to think. It's not enabling us to be creative. And so we need to be mindful about how we use these technologies. And I think I remember you saying, I think it might have been in your TED Talk, and he said that, that you enjoy gadgets yourself. I do. I do. But I think, well, as I mentioned, when I was writing this book, I actually had to go back to old tech because my brain was the rate-limiting step, as they say in chemistry. My brain is the thing that I have to make sure that everything aligns to its speed. And so technology was too fast for it. But generally, I love innovation. I love that people come up with ideas. They want to solve something and they want to help people. They want to keep us healthy. I'm really crazy about that. <laughs> but we have to just be careful that we don't get too caught up in building things and in the process lose ourselves, lose our humanities, lose our empathy, lose our creativity. This may seem lofty, but we have seen just with small devices, such as the telegraph and the light bulb, how they've made modifications. So it's not too crazy to think that the technologies that we're making, which are far more complex and using algorithms that are thousands and thousands of lines, will too have impact on us somehow. We just don't know what that is, but we should be mindful that it will have some impact. I wrote down, my brain is the rate-limiting step, a chemistry term. I want to look that up. That sounds quite interesting. And I, I, but that's how it feels, doesn't it? That, that technology is moving faster than our brains can move. And, right. And, and we should be mindful of the consequences. You quote David Eagleman, the neuroscientist, as saying, the more of the world you absorb, the more creative you can be mm -hmm. because you just have more raw materials to break and bend. But then he says, there are two parts to being creative. First, there's absorbing the whole world. And second, there's having the time to digest and put things together in a new way. Mm -hmm. And that kind of resonated for me. So on the one hand, maybe technology, the internet at large, could be a useful tool in giving us access to more raw material uh, that makes it possible to mix and combine that raw material in new creative ways. Mm -hmm. But But in order to do that, we need to also carve out time to slow down, focus, and as you say, incubate. Right, right. You know, I've noticed that every generation, they make technologies that are going to make us much more efficient. But when they make us more efficient, we never take time off. <laughs> we always do more. And so what I'm arguing in The Alchemy of Us is that, okay, we use the internet, we use it all the time. We don't take a pause to simmer and to incubate ideas. And as a result, our creativity is going to be modified. And you end the book by saying... There is a fork in the road and humanity must decide either to make better machines or become a better species. Is it one or the other? Do you think we need to stop making better machines? Or are you concerned about artificial intelligence, about embedding microchips in our brains? Where do you think we should draw the line? We have to have discussions really about what technologies are best for us. That's what's really missing because there are people who are building these innovations and there's people who are consuming these innovations, but we're not having a dialogue between those two groups. And that's really what we need if we want to make a future that's positive for all humans because we've looked at simple technologies and seen how they have changed us. And if simple technologies can change us, then these more advanced ones will certainly do that. Who do I speak to to make sure that it's moving us in the way that's best for all of humanity? If I hear people saying, asking that question, I will feel very satisfied. Another objective that I see in reading the book 
is your desire to democratize scientific exploration. And you say there's a wonderful line you have, every person can create something new, whether it's splicing beats with two turntables and a microphone, or splicing genes with two test tubes and CRISPR. <laughs> and stories about science and technology must reflect that innovation is universal. I wrote The Alchemy of Us to be an invitation to people who want a second chance with science. Maybe they got turned off in a science course or had a bad science teacher, whatever it is. I wanted them to have a second chance. I have a hunch that this book, Anissa, will be the three, two, one contact experience for some young people out there who are inspired by uh, the possibilities that exist and hopefully also take seriously the potential consequences of their, of their creations. So thank you so much, Anissa, for your time today and uh, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. From Wondery, this is the next big idea. If you have thoughts about The Alchemy of Us or any of the books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation with me, Anissa Ramirez, and other writers in this series at nextbigideaclub.com. It's a lively community of lifelong learners where you can interact with top nonfiction writers and get audio, video, and text summaries of their key ideas. Sign up for three months free at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Special thanks this week to Anissa Ramirez. Her book, The Alchemy of Us, is available wherever books are sold, or you can get a copy for free when you join us at nextbigideaclub.com. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Katya Apakina. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producer is Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.